for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. from Psalm 104, 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning. My name is John Odom, and I am a Christian. Thank you. Uh, This body of believers here at Cornerstone, uh, we're a Christian church. I'm a Christian. It's a Christian church. That feels like a very basic thing for one to say, but what does it mean for a person to say that I'm a Christian? They're a Christian. What's the meaning that we can commonly agree on that's encoded into that word that's sensible, that we can uh, understand? Now, you definitely get into perilous territory when you begin to say, well, here's who is and who isn't a Christian. Some of us know people who are Christians and who are jerks and who violate how we might define what it means to be a Christian. Many of us know people who are not Christians and yet behave in very Christ-like ways. They are made in the image of God and they just can't help but show it off, whether they believe in him or not. And when we have this kind of disparity, it muddies the the meaning of what it means to be Christian. But I want to say to you that words do matter. Words have meaning. There's intrinsic value encoded into these words, and so how we use words is really important, though the meaning of words can be strained or diluted over time. Many of you have probably read C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity, talks about how some, the usage of some words changes over time. He, t- he talks about in his introduction the word gentleman and how the word gentleman has changed. He said the word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some land and property. When you called someone a gentleman, you were not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a, a matter of fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. But then there came people who said so rightly and charitably and spiritually and sensitively, so anything but usefully, uh, ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms and the land, but the behavior. Surely he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should, who always checks their spelling twice. (laughs) To be honorable and courteous and brave is, of course, a far better thing than to have a coat of arms, but... It is not the same thing. To call a man a gentleman in this new refined sense becomes, in fact, not a way of giving information about him, but a way of praising him, 
To deny that he is a, not a, to deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. When a word ceases to be a term of description and merely becomes a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude toward that object. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and refined out of its old, coarse, objective sense, means hardly more than a man whom the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. Words change in how we use them over time. Well, how do we keep from, how do we ensure that the word Christian doesn't become utterly diluted? What happens if the word Christian gets confused in its meaning? How do we understand what a Christian is? Lewis continues. He says, now, if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining, or as they might say, deepening the sense of the word Christian, it too will speedily become a useless word. In the first place, Christians themselves will never be able to apply it to anyone. Now, it's not for us to say who in the deepest sense is or is not close to the Spirit of Christ. We don't see into men's hearts. We can't judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. It would be wicked arrogance for us to say that a man is or is not a Christian in this refined sense. And obviously, a word which we can never apply is not going to be a very useful word. So, says Lewis, we must therefore stick to the original obvious meaning. What is the original meaning of the word Christian? Lewis says the name Christian was first given at Antioch in Acts 11 to the disciples, to those who accepted the teaching of the apostles. When a man who accepts the Christian doctrine, the teaching of the apostles, lives unworthily of it, it is much clearer to say that he is a bad Christian than to say that he is not a Christian. The original meaning of this term is those who accepted the apostles' teaching, those who were apprentices or disciples of Jesus. Now, the, the teaching of the apostles was based on the eyewitness accounts, the lived experiences of those who were closest to Jesus. You can read this language in 1 John and elsewhere in the New Testament. It says, what we saw and heard we now pass on to you. Uh, Luke the evangelist says this in, in the beginning of his gospel, which many of you read this week. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us. The teaching of the apostles was passed along to the next generation of believers, and it was accepting that teaching that made them worthy of bearing the name Christian, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses. Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he has his own little statement of faith here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, and then he goes on to say, and he appeared to over 500 others. What he received was eyewitness testimony from the people who are closest to Jesus. And those who can bear the name Christian are those who hold on to this apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Well, then the question becomes, well, what constitutes the apostles' teaching? 
What creates the boundaries so that we can know what is and what is not Christian? Now, some people might think of this about being exclusive, using this for the purpose of saying who's on the outside, but really it's for the purpose of just clarifying what the words actually mean. We all agree that boundaries are good. Uh, This is my yard, that is your yard. If you want to leave your dog's poop in your yard, that's fine, but you cannot leave your dog's poop in my yard. That's crossing a boundary. Uh, Emily is my wife. She is not your wife, so back off. Okay? Boundaries are a good thing. I have a bank account. You have a bank account. That brings a lot of order to life. Uh, Boundaries are a good thing, meant to bring clarity, not expressly exclusion. Now, one of the earliest summaries of apostolic teaching, the eyewitness accounts and beliefs of those who were around Jesus, was assembled in the second century into an outline form that was called the rule of faith. And very early on, this rule of faith took on the name of the Apostles' Creed because it summarized apostolic teachings. That which I received, I passed on to you. Uh, The word creed comes from the Latin credo, meaning I believe. And in the primitive church, things like the Apostles' Creed were used in a question-answer format for a person who was uh, going through catechism, learning to be a disciple, and then ultimately being baptized. And so after this two- to three-year process of of learning what it means to be a Christian, you would be asked, Skeet, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And you would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It was used in this question-and-answer format to train the church. Uh, This question-and-answer format kind of sounds like someone is echoing what they've heard. That's the root of the word catechism. Is they're echoing back the instruction. What I received, I echoed back. I passed on to you. Uh, the Anglican Church, of which we're a part, has a, a great catechism, which is just called To Be a Christian, which is a skinny book, which I would recommend like as a great discipleship devotional kind of guide. And in the Anglican Catechism, they ask a few questions about the purpose of creeds. What is the purpose of the creeds? to declare and safeguard for all generations essential truths about God, the church, the world, as revealed in Holy Scripture. Everything that you're going to hear in the Apostles' Creed is directly derived from Holy Scripture. It's summarized. The purpose of the Creed is to declare and safeguard these truths. Another question it asked was, what does belief in the creeds signify? Well, it signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth. There's a, uh, like, you're subscribing to these beliefs, this understanding of the world and God and the church. But also, there's an ethical component, the intention to live by it. In creating boundaries, it says to reject any element of the creed signifies a departure of the Christian faith, from the Christian faith. Finally, it asks, why do you receive and believe the creeds? It says, I receive and believe in these creeds with the church because they are grounded in Scripture and are faithful to its teachings. Uh, the creeds, there are three great creeds that uh, the, the church writ large embraces. The Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed really focuses on the Trinity, and then the Nicene Creed. And the purpose of these creeds is to declare and to safeguard the truth. It's the basis for ethics. That was the idea of living by it. 
and it clarifies what Christians believe as rooted in the Holy Scriptures. And this fall, we're going to study the earliest of these creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which may be quite new to some and familiar for others. And you'll notice in a couple of minutes, we're going to read together the creed for the first time as a church. And you'll notice that there are three sections to the creed. It's Trinitarian. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, The next is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And after descriptions of Jesus, it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And and then we talk about the church and the work of God in the world. Uh, This is Trinitarian. And this is something, in, in taking in the Apostles' Creed, it's something that unites us with believers throughout time and around the world. It puts us on the same team as the Presbyterians and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. This unites us with believers all over the world. We are on the same team. Now, some of you may be sweating already. Some of you may be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of a creed. It's not printed in our Bibles. Why would we say this? But others of you may be uncomfortable with it precisely because you're an American. And the idea of a creed is unsavory to modern Americans because we don't like people telling us what to do, and we definitely don't like people telling us what to believe. Ours is a nation of innovators and renegades, and so we don't accept things just because people tell us to, and many of us would pride ourselves on the opposite. I'm not going to believe that just because you tell me to. So you were the ones last week who were like, I am not going to sing loud on principle of not being told what to do. You're an American. Congratulations. But this is a very natural result of the, the cultural soil in which we've been planted, At our old house in Jinx, uh, I had gone to Home Depot, and I just bought a bunch of peat moss. Nobody told me to buy peat moss, but I thought, I'm going to add that to the soil of my flower beds and just see what happens. Well, everything turned yellow. (laughs) In a similar way, there had been things injected into the American cultural soil that have affected the way that we have grown up uh, as citizens of this country. Over the last 200 years, track with me. Track with me. Over the last 200 years, there have been some things added to our cultural soil through great movements like the Enlightenment and Romanticism and the the advent of the psychological era. The work of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Francis Bacon and the poet Shelley and Nietzsche and Freud. Things have been added to our soil that are are hostile at times and inhospitable at times toward the posture necessary to receive with humility and gratitude that which has been handed down to us. There have been some things that unknowing to us have just shaped how we see and experience the world that make it difficult for us to do what Paul said, what I received I now believe and pass on to you. There have been some really big shifts in how we understand uh, ourselves and truth and ethics, a sense of right and wrong. From a view that relies on uh, communities like family and church to help shape our sense of personal identity to a posture that says, like, it's, it's mine to generate. Who I am is independent of the family I was born to or the church or the nation. We like to think of ourselves as as solitary players, individually defining our identity. 
we shifted from a view that says that, that truth is discovered into a view that tr truth is something that you self-generate. You make up your own truth. We've moved from a view that says that ethics are based on a kind of divine order. God has created a world in which there is intrinsic right and wrong, eternity written on our hearts. We have our conscience gives us a sense of we know when we've violated God's divine order. Two, this worldview that uses primarily empathy as a way of determining ethics. Now, what that means is, because empathy is a, is a positive word in many ways, but what that means is, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's fine. Now, that sounds reasonable and good in many ways, and yet it rejects the notion that there are intrinsic things like right or wrong. It's ultimately just a matter of preference. Now, all of that was an earful, right? But it represents a big shift about how we understand and define reality. And it's a shift from reality is defined outside of me and beyond me. God has encoded meaning into the universe, into my gender, into like every part of existence, even in my conscious, conscience, I can't escape his voice, toward a view of reality that it's to be defined from within. This is like a shift from a flat earth to like a, a round globe. This is a seismic, monumental, like consequential shift. Nietzsche wrote, he was talking, he, he wrote the story of the madman who comes into the town square and is crying out like God is dead. Therefore, we need to strip from our society any sense of order attached to religion or God. Like there is no truth beyond us, so let's make up whatever we want. This kind of shift is, is seismic, it's massive. And as a result, and this is happening in very real time, our news is littered with examples of this. Many institutions have shifted from reinforcing a sense of external ideals or truths to capitulating to the ever-changing demands of the sovereignty of self. Okay, you thought you heard an earful already. Hang with me. Carl Truman said, from this perspective that institutions now need to just accommodate the self. They're no longer stewards of a greater reality. From this perspective, that which hinders the outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself, and that which disturbs my sense of inner well-being is by definition thought to be harmful and is to be rejected. And that means that traditional institutions must be transformed to conform to the psychological self, not vice versa. This could also be described as the triumph of expressive individualism and of poiesis, meaning you make up your own truth, versus over mimesis, which is we inherit the truth that God has given to us and we conform our life to that. If education or therapy or religion or any other institution is to allow the individual simply to be himself, 
unhindered by outward pressure to conform to any greater reality, then the individual is king. He can be whoever he wants to be. And rejecting the notion of any external authority or meaning to which education or therapy or religion is to conform, the individual simply makes himself the creator of any meaning that there might be. So-called external or objective truths are then simply thought to be constructs designed by the powerful to intimidate and harm the weak, overthrowing them and thus overthrowing the notion that there is a great reality to which we are all accountable becomes the central purpose of institutions. They're not places to form, to transform, to be shaped by the gospel, but rather places where people can perform express their individuality. The triumph of the therapeutic represents the advent of the expressive individual as the normative type of human being and of the relativizing of all meaning and truth to personal taste. Okay, now let's all exhale together. Now, you might be inclined to say, John, oh man, I liked this church. Now you're just becoming a culture warrior. Not at all what I'm trying to do. With Paul, I say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Inside the church, there are conversations to be had. The soil in which we've been planted affects how we grow as Jesus, as followers of Jesus. And therefore, we're meant to be discerning, to be wise, to carefully consider how the nutrients and the pH balance in this soil is showing up in our lives. There are subtle and overt uh, philosophical, theological, socio-political forces actively working against the posture required to humbly and gratefully accept the truth of God. Uh, which anchors us in our identity, which provides the boundaries and the definition of our community, and which informs our sense of justice and ethics. So what we're going to do this fall in studying the Apostles' Creed and advocating for humble submission to the Apostles' teaching is countercultural, it's counterintuitive, and it is just downright Jurassic in many people's minds. But from my perspective... Where else can we stand? All other ground is sinking sand. In college, you've heard me say this before, probably I worked at Office Depot, and I would buzz down to store 359, managed by Jeff, and uh, would work for a couple of hours, and I'd buzz back for a 20-minute lunch in the, uh, in the, whatever we called the cafeteria, and as I walked around Office Depot, I wore my blue Office Depot outfit, and in my front pocket, I had this little index card, and I was memorizing Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, and he established it on the waters. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, and it goes on. The earth is the Lord's. We are born into his reality, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we want to submit to it or not. And yet this is my father's world. Where else can we stand? All other ground is sinking sand. 
Now, I want to add one last word on this theme before we, today, which has mostly been an introduction, reflect briefly on the first clause in the Apostles' Creed. I want to offer one more word on this theme, that not only are we as Americans culturally conditioned to be skeptical of the idea of truth that's outside of us, there's also a subset within the Christian community that are suspicious of those who define truth, not because of genuine beef with orthodoxy, but because so many Christian leaders have failed. Because there's so much cultural baggage associated with American evangelicalism. You got beef with some of the trappings of church world, and therefore, like in the last recent years, you've been saying, I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't know what to believe, I don't know who to believe, and I genuinely get it. Truthfully, it's amazing that any of you have chosen to come to a worship service. It's really pretty amazing given how many catastrophic failures there have been institutionally by the church and denominations and also individually by pastors. It is downright remarkable that any of us are still trying. Man, God must be at work. I get why many of you would be suspicious, and you're right to reject parts of evangelical culture, just like Jesus was cautious and skeptical about parts of the religious tradition of those who were stewarding the temple and, and the, the Torah at the times. But I will tell you that I think a whole lot can be straightened out with a good dose of creedal Christianity. And you maybe have never taken a swig from that bottle. It's going to be good for you. So, sit up in your seats, get ready to use your strong voice. We're going to say together uh, the Apostles' Creed. Some of you are like, I don't want to say it until I'm sure that I believe in all of it. Suspend your skepticism for the moment and just say it with us. Come on, be a team player. So sit up in your seat in a nice strong voice. We're going to read these 12 confessions of the Apostles' Creed. So we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Some of you were good until we got to the Catholic part, and they're like, whoa, hold up. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. For now, I'll just say, it didn't say, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And there's a difference. The first clause, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What good words. I believe. It starts with belief. I believe. To be part of, of the Christian faith, to be a disciple of Jesus requires belief requires saying, I'm in on this. Do you remember the moment in Mark chapter 8? Jesus is like, hey, disciples, who do people say I am? Well, some say you're, you know, John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Yeah, but who do you say I am? Peter said, I would say 
You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the storyline changes after that confession. It's like, yeah, that's the confession I'm going to build my church on. It starts with belief. It can be difficult to believe. Every now and then you're in worship, you're praying. You're just trying to psych yourself up to believe it one more day. Sometimes it can be hard to believe. But it requires that. It requires a measured leap. I don't think it's blind faith. I think we've been given some things that we can see and that we can bank on. It's not wholly blind. But it does require a leap. It does invite belief. I love the, the guy who said uh, to Jesus, you know, like, uh, I believe, but help my unbelief. I would just say, give yourself permission to be in the process of learning to believe. I love one definition of theology, which is faith or belief, seeking understanding. If you're having questions, don't write off whatever measure of belief that you have. Continue asking the the, the questions with whatever measure of belief that's in you. It starts with, with, I believe. I believe in God. Who's God? Uh, The Catechism defines God as one divine being, eternally existing in three divine persons. Now, would you guys explain that to your neighbor real quick? One divine being, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the Trinity. Later, when you're bored and you feel like some church humor, go to YouTube and look up uh, St. Patrick and the Trinity. There's a hilarious cartoon video about how almost any way that you attempt to describe the Trinity is probably heresy. <laughs> it's going to violate either the unity or the oneness of God, or it's going uh, to violate the threeness of God. Triunity, Trinity. I believe in God. If you get that far, it's extraordinary. Believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was the the challenge of the people of Israel and the first Christians in in coming face-to-face with the person of Jesus Christ and then especially with the advent of the Holy Spirit. They grew up reciting the Shema. Uh, Behold, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah, we got Jesus. We got the Spirit. This is what we call progressive revelation. Wow, we've seen behind more and more of the curtain. I believe that somehow God exists in perfect unity and yet distinction within the Godhead as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To get that far requires humility and requires an embrace that there are mysteries beyond our understanding. And yet we've been shown enough to believe in this much. It says, I believe in God the Father. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus uh, talked to God as Father. When he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, Our Father, the progenitor of all of human life. He said, Our Father. Now, Father may be a difficult term uh, for some, But rather than rejecting the idea of fatherhood, or as some have done, replacing it with motherhood, Jesus addressed God as Father. You can't change that stuff without messing up other things. Rather than rejecting it, let the fatherhood of God heal 
and redeem your image of fatherhood. The Catechism asks, what do you mean when you call God Father? I declare that I was created for relationship with Him, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as His child and heir in Christ. 1 John 3, 1, see what love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty. So it means to say that God is almighty, that God is powerful over all. There is no power that rivals or supersedes that of our Father Almighty. When it comes to God the Father and the devil, we are not talking about a conversation between equals. There is, you have no rival, you have no equal now and forever, God, you reign. I believe in God the Father Almighty. The Father with the Son and the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, omnipresent, nothing is beyond Him. It says, creator of heaven and earth. All things, whether visible or invisible, have been created by Him and are made for His glory, even us. And one of the great mysteries of our existence is we know that the world is broken, and yet we can't escape that this world is also good. It's because God made it. He made it with such love and joy that He put into it human beings who had the ability to make choices for themselves. And as a result of our collective rebellion, the, the consequences of our sin have been like, like, a, like a rock in the windshield and just spreading outward. We're like a million bouncy balls bouncing off like a racquetball room, just taking people out indiscriminately left and right. God made all things, including us, and gave us the ability to make choices. And as a result of those choices, there is chaos and destruction and hurt in our world. It's a mystery. Our world is deeply broken, and yet our world is also good. It's been made for His glory. And though we've marred even the image of God in us, and we, we dishonor the image of God in other people, God made all things for His glory, and we will be returned to glory. And one of the profound mysteries of the way of Jesus in the gospel is that God entered into this creation that He made in the person of Jesus Christ, was willing to be born to a teenage girl, Enter into, all, into, into our existence to know what it's like to have your feelings hurt, to skin your knees. Know what it's like to be tempted in every way and yet without sin. God in Christ has subjected himself to entering into our creation so that he knows what it's like to empathize and therefore be the perfect high priest and advocate for us. Now return to glory at the right hand of the Father. Which leads us to another mystery beyond our comprehension, which is what happens when we're at the table. Where through the Holy Spirit, the, the presence and the power of the risen Christ are with the church, taking normal elements like, like wafers and juice, and by virtue of Christ's own incarnation, sanctifying them. All of creation, in a sense, is sacramental in this way, alive with the glory of God. 
And as today we affirm what we've received, we now pass on to one another. Believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We can't help on a Sunday also affirm Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who entered into creation to redeem what was broken. And now resurrected at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. As we sang earlier, we affirm, this is my Father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Father, I'm mindful. I think of uh, David in Psalm 19. Who can discern their own errors? And Lord, there, there are ways in which we've not even chosen to be affected by the country in which we've been born, but it's just very natural. And sometimes it's very hard for us to believe because we've been trained to believe only that which we can see, only that which we can test for. And how can we test for the Trinity? We don't want to be told what to do, what to believe, and yet you, and you give grace to the humble and you resist the proud. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the grace to be humble before you to bow our knees before you, to accept with joy and with humility that which has been passed on to us. Help us to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, revealed most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ and preserved through the teaching of the church founded on the scriptures. Purify us and wash us by the word, Lord. Help us to repent of other lovers and lesser lovers. Help us to love you, Lord, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to hunger and thirst for truth. As we come to receive Holy Communion today, Lord Jesus, you who entered into the creation that you are a part of making, would you make us aware of your presence, manifest your presence among us. Heal the sick, forgive the sinner, encourage the weary unite the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.